our youth did something, well, first of all, good afternoon, church. Our youth did something really uh, awesome this Halloween. We no longer just use Christmas to get the gospel out. We are using other holidays, like Halloween, to get the gospel out to people. What they did is they were giving out gospel tracts to the people that were walking around and, you know, trick-or-treating, which is, praise God, amen? And uh, hopefully next year we can get more of the youth and maybe even you to join and just to have little tables handing out gospel tracts to people uh, because this is the one time of the year that they're willing to take something. But uh, something kind of interesting happened the next day on Facebook in the West Sac uh, Facebook discussion group, and someone, you know, wrote, someone was really angry about the gospel tracks. They're like, we're the ones pushing agenda on our kids. Don't pass this stuff out to our kids on Halloween, right? And um, they were obviously very upset that someone had given their child a gospel track. And if you look at the thing, it's, it's just a good old-fashioned gospel track. And you might be thinking, why am I showing you this? Well, this as we will see today in John 16, is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world today. You know, sometimes we're confused, like, what does the Holy Spirit do? This is a prime example of what the Holy Spirit does, convicting the world. And before we, uh, you know, go on to read our passage in John 16, if we can go to the next slide. I love the top comment. Someone said, if you come to someone's door, you can't be offended by what they give you. It's true. You know, you, you kind of came to them, right? You're pushing your own agenda on them. So, you know, they have rights to give you something for free as well. So let's go to the next slide. Open up your Bibles church to John 16 verse 1 and we'll read the first 15 verses. Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever will kill you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning righteousness and concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they did not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I have said, I have many, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, a central theme in the book of John, in the gospel of John, is the revelation of the Father through the Son, right? We've seen that. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, that's speaking of Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has come into this world to make the Father known. We read that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to believe in him. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And those who reject the son are condemned already and we know that Jesus is also called the Word of God, right? In the beginning was the Word. The, wor the, the word Word, in essence, is, uh, has revelation tied to it, right? A Word reveals something to us about the speaker who speaks the Word. So, Gospel of John is constantly talking about light, right? Again, a, for, a form of revelation. Those who reject Jesus are blind and in darkness. They don't have the revelation of God. Those who don't know Jesus don't know the Father. Those who know the Father also know Jesus. 
Why? Because Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God to this world. Now, verse 7 says that I will send you the helper, the helper. And John 14, 16 also uses the same word. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, this word helper in Greek means paraclete or parakletos, right? If we can get that on the screen. And this word is very interesting because it gets translated in many different ways. It gets translated as advocate. It gets translated as teacher, as comforter, as helper, as witness. What does this word mean in Greek? So, it, it comes from two words in Greek. It means para, para, which means, you know, think the word parallel, right? Besides one another, parallel lines. And kaleo, which means call, to make a call. So, so literally it means one who is called to be at the side of another person. That's what parakletos means. So it makes sense why it gets translated as helper because, you know, when you need help, it's like, hey, come give me a hand, right? Someone who's called to be the side of you, right? It makes sense when it's translated as comforter because when you're going through a difficult time and someone comes to be at your side, to be a shoulder to lean on, cry on, right? That's your comforter and also advocate and witness. Well, how does being called to someone's side an advocate or a witness? Well, if we go back in the time of Jesus... Their legal system was a little bit different than the legal system we have today. Right now we have the judge, and then we have the prosecuting attorney, and we have the defending attorney. Well, back in the time of Jesus, it was just the judge, and he would call up different witnesses to the stand. There were no, you know, official two-lawyer system. What it was is, let's say you were being prosecuted for a crime. Well, what he would do, the judge, is he would call someone to stand beside you, someone who knows you very well, and someone who'd give a testimony, who would testify, who would witness about how good of a person you are. No, he would never do that, right? Or, yeah, maybe he would do something like that. So that's why parakletos is oftentimes translated as advocate or witness. Now, What's interesting is in John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now, another helper. If there's another helper, then what does that mean, church? How many helpers are there? At least two, right? At least two helpers. So who's the first helper, church? You can shout it out. Jesus Christ. Amen. He is our first paraclete or paracletos. John, 1 John 2, 1. This is a letter that John wrote to the churches after. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You guessed it. The word advocate here is the same exact Greek word, paracletos. That we have a helper, we have a witness, we have an advocate. Jesus is the first helper. Jesus is the first one who is called to be with us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is our advocate before God. Jesus is our helper. Jesus is the one who also witnesses to the things of God to us as well. Remember the central theme of John? The revelation of the Father through the Son. Jesus himself even says in John 18, 37, before Pilate, he says, For this purpose I was born. And have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus is the paraclete, the first paraclete, and the Spirit is the other paraclete, the other helper. In fact, if we, if we go to the next slide, there's so many parallels. I've just given you a little bit out of the, this is just out of the Gospel of John. Jesus is sent by the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Jesus is the teacher of disciples. The Holy Spirit comes to teach the disciples further. Jesus is the witness to the truth. Holy Spirit is the witness about Jesus. And lastly, Jesus was not accepted by the world, nor is the Holy Spirit of God. As you can see, they have one and the same mission. 
to witness and reveal to this world the things of God. Jesus comes into the flesh, and he begins this mission, and after he ascends, the Holy Spirit continues the same exact mission that the Father gave them. Now, what I want to spend the rest of this message doing is just going verse by verse about this passage about the Holy Spirit and and learn what does Jesus teach us about the other helper before he leaves. So let's open your Bibles and just have them open. John 16 verse 7. John 16 verse 7. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we don't know why the helper cannot come or could not come until Jesus left. We don't know. It's a divine mystery. But in God's wisdom and plan, Christ had to first finish his work here on earth, ascend back to the Father, be glorified, and then and only then would he send the helper. Again, we don't know why. Now, you know, when Jesus says, it's better, it's to your advantage that I go away, every time I read this passage, I'm like, is Jesus being sarcastic? Like, you know, how could that be better? How could it be better that Jesus would leave us? Like, I don't want Jesus to leave. I, I want you to stay here and be with me. And, and, and even if you need to go, don't say it's better for us that you leave, right? We, in our hearts, we don't feel that it's better. But church... It clearly, it emphatically is better for Jesus to have left the earth physically so that the Spirit can now be present with us. Truly is better. And the question is, do we believe that in our hearts? Are we rejoicing over the fact that Jesus has ascended to the throne and now he has sent the helper? It is to our advantage just a few reasons thinking about why it's better. And, I, you know, we don't know for sure. But think about this. Jesus was bound to one location here on earth, right? In his human flesh, right? And he, he could do extraordinary things, but he was still one person. But now we have the Spirit no matter where we go, no matter what we do on the furthest ends of the earth. Just imagine this for a second. If Jesus was still in the flesh and he still somehow kept living on earth, right, and the Spirit never came. You know, they estimate there's about 2 billion Christians, right? 2 billion Christians. Now imagine there was a long wait list to talk to Jesus, right, to go in and talk to him. Two billion people is a lot of people. And imagine Jesus would talk to each person for only a minute, right? Because that's the only amount of time that he can spare to talk to each person. Well, if you do the math, we have about half a million minutes per year. Per year, <laughs> okay? So, and that's no bathroom breaks. That's no sleeping. That's no eating. That's nothing. That's just 24-7. You're just cranking out people, like walking through the door. Well, if you were to get in line as soon as you were born, by the time you would die, the line would have moved up only about two and a half percent, right? You would not get a chance to see Jesus physically. None of us would, right? And so what Jesus does is he sends his presence across the whole world to all people, and the Spirit has been working, and it's not, it's not just that he's just in here and, oh, great, fun. No, no, the Spirit has been moving through us across the whole world now that he has come. Church, it is truly better that Jesus has ascended and, and keep in mind, this is, not a, this is not a permanent separation from Jesus. This is a very temporary separation. But in this temporary, temporary time, in this moment, it is better that Jesus has ascended and all of us now as believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And I'll give you, I'll give you another proof why it's better that Jesus ascended. Compare the apostles before Jesus ascended and after he ascended. Right? Just full of pride and sin and selfishness, cowardice, right? Like they couldn't do anything, right? Peter, the leader, was afraid of a servant girl. They all ran away after Jesus ascended. 
empowered them with the Holy Spirit. They, and not they, but the Holy Spirit turned the world upside down. Without the physical presence of Jesus, truly it is better for us that he has ascended. So church, this is a place for us to rejoice that we now have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the person of the Trinity, not some angel, not some delegate, but the God himself dwelling in us and among us. Amen? That is beautiful. The next point that I want to show is that oftentimes we as people, we, we, we try to mystify the Holy Spirit, right? And, and it, truly, there, there isn't a ton covered in scriptures, and there's a lot we don't know, but there is a lot we do know that the scripture does teach specifically about the Holy Spirit. So let's read together verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. This is the first thing that the Spirit's job is to convict us of is sin. Everybody loves John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's an amazing verse. But there is more to it than just John 3.16. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now that God has sent his Son, now that God has paid for our sins and he's offering us full redemption and forgiveness, in a sense, you could say the only sin that now matters post-Christ, in a sense, is whether people believe in Jesus or not. At the end of the day, that's the difference that makes the difference, right? God is willing to forgive it all. God is willing to do a complete clearing of our sin debt. Forget it. Leave it all behind us. We can walk totally free if we believe. Forgiveness is not for those who do not believe. You see, unbelief in the Son of God is not just another sin that gets piled onto the pile of sins that God will then forgive people at the end of the age. That's not what unbelief is. Belief or unbelief is the difference that makes the difference. It's, it, if you think about a, a modern analogy, it's the key. It's the password, right? It unlocks Everything God has provided us with a bank account with billions of dollars to clear the foolish debt that we have got ourselves into, and now he gives us the key, and if we foolishly throw it away, we can't be forgiven. Refusing to use the password to God's bank account is the ultimate act of negligence and foolishness because we throw away the only chance at forgiveness. You know, so many people in this world, they have the wrong understanding of God. You stop a random person on the street. You ask them, hey, when you die, where are you going? Most people, what would they say? Heaven, right? I'm going to heaven. Why? Well, you know, I'm, I've, I've been good. That's usually the answer. I, I try to be good. You know, I'm not as bad as other people. Okay, but you're like, hey, but God's standard is perfection right? God's standard is perfection, and, and you're, you're falling short of that. What's the response? Well, I'll just ask him forgiveness, right? I'll just ask him, and he'll forgive me, right? That, that's, the, that's the mentality, right? Oh, he's a loving God, and when I get there, I'll just ask him to forgive me, and he'll forgive me. People assume that God is simply a fuzzy teddy bear that will just always forgive you. And church, I want to be clear. God is love, he really is. God is loving and gracious and kind and merciful through his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his own son to die on our behalf, and if we accept his son, we will live, and we will live forever. But if we ignore God's ultimate act of kindness, we cannot expect God to be forgiving. Yes, God is love. He is loving, merciful, kind, and gracious, and good. But if we ignore his love, 
his grace, his mercy in Christ, then there is no more forgiveness for us. Church, this is really important because maybe you're just kind of riding on this hope that, you know what, I, I don't really have to do anything. I don't have to change my life. I don't have to. Essentially, what you're saying is I don't really need to believe in Christ. I don't need to believe, I'll just believe in him when the time comes, when the end comes. Then I will actually believe in him. Then I will actually take Jesus seriously. It's not going to work. It, it, imagine if we as sinners are, are starving, poor people, right? And God is this man that, you know, let's just say he started poor, earned a bunch of money, hard-earned money, honest money, and then one day he says, I want to go feed these people. So he sells all that he has. He travels to the other side of the world to feed us, right? He buys the food. He's traveling to us. He gets malaria, almost dies bringing this food to us, finally comes to us, brings the food, and we're just too tired to even, you know, to walk up to him. So he comes up to us. He gets the food and he puts it in our mouth. And he says, eat it. You will live. Eat it. You will live. And if we as sinners refuse to swallow the food that God has put into our mouths, we won't survive. We won't live. Right? There's no more love or grace or sacrifice possible if we reject God's love and grace and sacrifice. The starving person can't tell the generous man, well, you should have you done more, right? You should have swallowed it for me. You should have shoved it down my throat, right? You should have been more generous, more loving, more kind. We understand that's absurd. That's absurd. God has removed all barriers to eternal life, completely, everything. It's not based by works. We don't need to attain some moral standard. We don't need to do any of those things. God has removed everything through his son, Jesus Christ. All we must do is trust in him. You could say swallow, swallow the food. That's all you need to do. It's already there. You need to just believe in Jesus, trust in him, so here's some very practical application, friends. Are you believing in Jesus? God has provided a way of salvation for all people. Have you believed in Christ? If not, you can turn to him today, right now. The word of God says today is the day of salvation. You can trust in Jesus today. And what, what does that look like? That, mean, that looks like actively trusting him with your life, with your time, trusting him with your future, trusting him with the desires of your heart, trusting him with your goals, with your dreams, with your hopes, with your fears, with your sins, your struggles, your pains, with everything. Trust everything into his hands. That's what believing in Jesus looks like. Trust him and he will bring you into eternal life. He will not leave you. He will provide. It's a promise, church. It's a promise of God. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Also, next we read verse 10. The Holy Spirit convicts concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, what does Jesus going to the Father have anything to do with righteousness? Like, if you had to sit and explain verse 10, how would you explain that? What does Jesus going to the Father have anything to do with righteousness? He could have said, with love, with holiness, with faith, with anything. And how, how is Jesus ascending and righteousness, how are those two related? Let's read it, something else that John wrote in a different letter. And we've read this already. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, this is the same passage that calls Jesus the paraclete, the advocate, the helper, the witness. And Jesus is also referred to as righteous. And it also says that Jesus is with the Father. 
So there's this connection between righteousness and Jesus being with the Father and him being our helper and our advocate. Let's read another passage, Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is where? At the right hand of God. What is he doing? Who is indeed is interceding for us. This is all connected. Jesus is with the Father, interceding on our behalf, advocating for us, meaning the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness, you could say, in two senses. The first one, the Spirit is convicting the world, testifying to the world that Jesus is righteous. That's the first one. People called him a sinner. Like, if you study the Gospel of John, he gets called a sinner, that he was doing evil, that he was misleading the people, that he's a blasphemer, an imposter, a wannabe, you know, savior, all these things. And he could have been, because there was a lot of people that said the same things that he said, right? I'm the savior of the world, I'm this and that. But the fact that Jesus was raised, and not just raised, it's one thing to, you know, do a, you know, a, a stunt into optical illusion and to raise people from the dead, pretend like they were raised, but he was ascended to the Father as proof of his righteousness. Because we know that nothing evil can dwell in the presence of God. And the fact that the heaven had received Jesus Christ, God's Son, is proof that Jesus is righteous, that he was who he said he was. He was not an imposter. He was not an evildoer. He was pure. And two, the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness in the sense that the only hope of righteousness that we have now is Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf, advocating on our behalf. That's our, church, that's our only hope of righteousness. We will never be good enough according to even the standards in our own heads, not even speaking of the standard of God. We will never, and that's the whole point of the Gospels, we could never reach it. Even if we spent billions of years trying to be good, we could never do it. Our only hope of righteousness is the fact that Jesus is with the Father interceding on our behalf, advocating for us. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Church, this is the good news of God. We are free We are righteous, not on our behalf, but on Christ's behalf. You see, the Spirit does not just convict the world of sin. It's one thing to convict the sinners of sinfulness, but the Spirit also shows the world a way out, right? It's one thing to come up to someone to their face and say, you know, you've got a lot of problems, man. You're messed up. You're a bad person. Sometimes people need to hear that. It's one thing to do that. It's a whole nother to save it. And you know what? I can show you how to fix it. It's one thing to, right, to diagnose a disease. It's a completely other thing to actually offer a cure. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit isn't coming down and just casting everybody down, shaming them and says, you're hopeless. No, the Holy Spirit comes and also convicts of righteousness, offers a cure to our disease, sin. And lastly, the Holy Spirit convicts this world, verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the Spirit is proclaiming to the world that God is victorious, that God has won, the good side has won, and that the ruler of this world, the devil, has lost. It's the Spirit's job to declare this victory and simultaneously to warn the whole world that all who follow the enemy will be judged like the enemy. Church, God has won. This is the good news of God. The Spirit reminds us that this age of corruption, 
it will end. All the negative things that we experience are a result of sin in our lives. Whatever it is, whether relationally, personally, physically, spiritually, all of it is a result of sin. And the Spirit is declaring to this world now, convicting this world that this world is judged, the ruler of the world is judged, and there will be a new world soon. Sin and all of its effects will be undone, rolled back Because the one who corrupted this world, the ancient serpent, is now judged. And that is good news. The bad guy has been defeated. The hero has won. And we can rejoice. The world is saved. Peace will be restored. But in declaring the victory, the spirit also warns. He warns that the ruler of the world is judged. And if you are not following Jesus, then the word of God says you are following the enemy. You are following the ruler. You can't be in between. There is no in between. You're either, you're either going this way or you're going that way. There is no other directions to go. You're moving either closer to God or further away from God. And the spirit convicts saying, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. Judgment day is coming. And you can hear the Spirit warning through Apostle James. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the Spirit comes to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the last point for today, let's read Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will, de- he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What Jesus is referring to here, and we will see that unpacked through the rest of the New Testament, is Jesus is speaking about the Spirit giving us the word of God. He's, he's you could say, prophesying, he's foreshadowing that we will receive revelation from the Spirit, the word. Now, notice he says he will guide you into all truth. Right? We see that there. In the very next chapter, Jesus defines truth. He says, John 17, 17, your word is truth. So the Spirit will guide us into God's word, right? And, and, and I want you, I've highlighted here all the ways when it says that he will speak. He will declare. Notice this. Speak, speak, declare, declare, declare. The Spirit is speaking and speaking and declaring and declaring. And, you know, oftentimes we as people, because there's, we, we know so little about the Spirit, people like to mystify the Spirit and try to, you know, say, oh, there's all these, like, feelings associated with the Spirit. Like, you know, I feel the Spirit's presence, and I feel this, and I feel... And I don't think that's wrong per se. Biblically, I don't think there's anything that speaks against that. But in the way that Jesus is communicating about the Spirit, it's all about speaking. It's speaking. Look at that. The Holy Spirit is a speaking God. The Holy Spirit is not mute that just comes upon you and gives you a feeling. No, the Holy Spirit speaks. He declares things, right? The Holy Spirit is not just some warm blanket that you put on during a cold winter's night. The Holy Spirit speaks, he declares, he instructs. It's very important for us to see the Spirit as one who speaks. And notice it says, he will guide you into all truth. Not in the sense that, I don't think what Jesus was saying is, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you all knowledge that there is to know about this world, you know, including physics and politics and medicine and science, right? He's going he's gonna to give you all facts that there are to know. We understand that's not Probably what not, that's not what Jesus had in mind when he says all truth. But then, then what does that mean, all truth? And I think what it means is in the sense that he will give you all that is needed, right? All the truth that is necessary 
that you need as, as for while Jesus is absent, all that truth that you need, the Spirit will give you. There will be nothing lacking from what the Spirit provides the church after Christ leaves. The Spirit guides us into all the truth we need to be convicted of sin, to receive righteousness, to avoid judgment. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power, that's God's divine power, has granted to us all things, notice that phrase, all things, that pertain to life and godliness, how? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of God, we are given, we're granted all things that relate to life and godliness. Meaning, through the knowledge of him, we have all that we need to live a godly and Christian life here on earth in the absence of Jesus. And church, where do we get the knowledge of God? Do we dream it up? No. We get it from the truth, from God's word. So the Spirit guides us into all the truth that we need, meaning there is nothing missing or lacking from what the Spirit provides. It's not like... Jesus came and gave us a little bit. Then the Spirit comes and gives us a little bit. Then someone else comes and gives us a little bit. No, no, no. He says, I started this work. When the Spirit comes, he will give you everything. He'll give you everything you need, all things. And this, this is a huge blow to those who say, no, Muhammad also gave us some more stuff. Joseph Smith gave us some more stuff. Uh, Jehovah Witness, you know, the Watchtower organization, they gave us some really good stuff. No, the Holy Spirit gave us all truth, all that we need. Continuing, verse 13, for he will speak, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we see he's not speaking on his own authority. He will take what is Jesus's and declare it to us, verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So all the words that the Holy Spirit has spoken to us as the church are actually from Jesus, which actually originates from the Father. It, the Spirit's not making up his own stuff. He's telling us stuff directly from the Father through Jesus, and that's why Two chapters before, John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And notice this, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit reveals truth to the church by bringing to remembrance the words of Jesus. And he did that to the apostles. He brought those words to remembrance. They wrote those words down, and they have passed them down to us, and we have received the very words of God. And this explains our understanding of the Holy Scripture, church. The Bible, this is very important. The Bible is not just a collection of writings of some spiritual guys that had experiences of God. That is not what the Bible is by any means. Here, Jesus is telling us clearly that the scriptures, which is what the, the Spirit gave us, will be by the Spirit, not by man, and he will lead us into all truth, meaning it is sufficient. Nothing is lacking. It is complete. There is no error. And church, this is so critical for us I was recently talking to a guy that used to go to Bright Church years ago, and he believes the complete opposite of this right now. I don't think he'd even describe himself as a Christian if you were to ask him. He doesn't believe the Bible is God's word. He says, well, I believe those people, you know, God is the God of all people. I believe they had some kind of experiences with God. It's just a collection of writings that someone thought something was from God. But if the Bible is just a collection of words that may or may not be from God, then we have no way of knowing what's actually true and what is not true. No, Jesus gives us a promise. He says, all truth, meaning it will be reliable, not confusing. Church, if the Bible 
in our minds becomes a book of just experiences of God that people interpreted through their own subjective viewpoints, then you know what happens? This is very subtle. But we now become the ones who decide what is true and what is not, right? Because I sit there and I think, well, you know, that doesn't seem true, so it's probably not from God. This seems true, so it's from God, and I'm going to listen to this. This, I'm not going to really emphasize it at all, right? Our own subjective experience becomes the standard of truth. But you know what the problem with our subjective experience is? It's subjective, and it's constantly shifting and changing, is it not? Right? Oh, I really want this. Ooh, well, now, you know what? You know, this, you know, this is not as bad as I thought it was. You know, I'm changing my opinion on certain things. And boom, there goes all truth out the window. As soon as we open that door, church, we can twist the Bible in any way that we want. And that's exactly why you will drive by churches today. You can drive down 10 minutes into downtown it's a church with the cross of Christ and a rainbow LGBTQ flag. The Bible clearly states it's a sin. But those people have become those who can now decide what is God's word, what is Paul's words, what is Jesus' words. You know what they say? Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. So it must be fine, right? It didn't start with that. It didn't start with homosexuality. It started with, I don't think this is really God's word. It's mostly God's word. It's a mix of, you know, Peter's or Paul's interpretation and God's word. Once you open that door, you'll never close it. What, is the, what does God tell us about the Bible? What does the Holy Spirit himself say about what he inspired? Please, church, open your Bibles. This is such an important verse. 2 Timothy 3.16. You could say the second most important 3.16 verse in the Bible. They're, they're all important, but just for you to remember this easily. 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, this, this phrase, breathed out by God, in Greek is just one word. It's theonoustos, right? And it just literally means it's a combination of two words, and I think Paul actually just kind of created that word in order to communicate this idea. It means God, theo, noustos, breathe, God breathe. It just means all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, here's what's interesting. The word breath, pneuma, in Greek, is the same exact word that is used for the Spirit. They're, this, they're, they're interchangeable, pneuma. They're both pneuma, right? That's why I say, you know, you can get pneumonia, the, the infection of your lungs. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is spirited by God. It is given to us by the breath of God himself, who is the Spirit. And the breath of God leads us into all truth, as Jesus has promised us. And a second really important passage, just a couple of pages over, Second Peter chapter 1. I want you to open your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, just so you remember where this passage is. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter writes, he says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Church, this is monumental, right? And we must hold fast to this, and we must live by this church. Look at this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It wasn't some dude that had a crazy dream and he thought God was talking to him, so he wrote it down. It wasn't some guy that was in the wilderness and he found some mushrooms, he ate it, he had an experience, and he wrote it down. That's not what Scripture is. It's not some guy sitting there thinking, what does this mean? Oh, I think that's what it means. No, it's not somebody's thoughts on what God said. No, it is God's thoughts, not a human interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. 
There you have it. It was not produced by people. None of us made it. It was given to us from heaven, from God. And the Bibles you hold in your hands are not mere words of men. Church, this is critical. It is given to us from a different world, from above, from God himself. It says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It says, men spoke from God, not from themselves, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't from people that carried the Holy Spirit. I'm carrying the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to let, you know, I'm going to talk some things because the Holy Spirit's inspiring me. No, men were the ones being carried by the Holy Spirit, right? The word carried in Greek is passive, meaning it's being done to you. If someone were to come up, pick you up, and start carrying you, you're not doing the carrying, the, whoever's carrying you is doing the carrying. And the Holy Spirit is the one who initiated, the one who took the people and carried them along. The Spirit is the active one. The people are the ones who take the passive role. So here we have a very solid understanding of the theology of Scripture. That the Bible is God's word. It's from God, from the Spirit of God, not from man. It is enough, all truth. It is true. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. And some of you might be sitting here, well, the Gospels were from God, right, from Jesus, but how about Paul? Like, who, where did Paul even show up? He wasn't even around the disciples, right? Like, where did Paul show up? I don't have time to unpack this, but I'll give you a quick passage. Second Peter, that same book, verse, chapter 3, verse 15, Peter, the number one guy of Jesus, the number one apostle, right, who was with Jesus the entire time, speaking about Paul and his writings, he says, and count the patience of the, our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, who wrote to you concerning to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them, that means in the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand. So we're not alone. When, when you're reading Romans and Ephesians and you're like, ah, is that, this is hard to understand. You're not alone, right? Even Peter admits it's difficult sometimes. It's deep, right? There's diamonds there. It says, which the ignorant and unstable twist. So they twist the letters of Paul to their own destruction. And here's, here's the key line. As they do the other scriptures. Notice, Peter doesn't say, as they do, they twist Paul's words just like they twist the scriptures. No, he says, as they twist, they twist Paul's words as they do the other scriptures. What does that word other mean? It means that Paul's words are also scripture. And the Holy Spirit carrying Peter along is indicating that, hey, I've also spoken through Paul. And that's also Scripture, just like the Old Testament that I inspired before Christ came. Church, the Scriptures, they testify to themselves. Self-attestation. They self-authenticate themselves. And if you take an honest read at them, you will realize and have to admit, these are not the words of man. These are the words of God and how critical it is for us to hold fast to God's word. If we, if we turn around claiming that these are the words of man, this is man's words, mix of God's words, we are headed for destruction because we now become the judges of what is true and what is not true. And we know we have sinful desires and we twist the truth for the sake of our desires Philippians 2.16 says, holding fast to the word of life. The word of life. Notice that. If we let go of God's word, the word of life, we are headed for what? Death, for destruction. That's why Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. And by the way, he's quoting the Old Testament. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know what a super practical application of this sermon is? And I want, to call, I want to call the band up. Church, are we living by the words of God? Actually, 
Not in theory, oh, I believe the Bible. Yeah, the Bible's true. I've read it before. What is there, something new in there, right? Church, the Bible are the words of God himself given to us by the Spirit who descended upon after the ascension of Jesus. This is not just another book with just facts. Jesus himself, God's word, is revealed to us in the Bible. And when we love him and when we know him and study him, that is when real transformation of our life happens. When we meet him, the word of God, Jesus Christ, that's where we find forgiveness. Church Psalm 1 compares the person that meditates on the word of God as the one who's planted by the, a tree that's planted by streams of water. I imagine a tree in a desert and everything around it is dead, but it is thriving. It is bearing fruit because it has that source of life, the water in that desert. Are we feeding our souls with the streams of the waters of the words of the living God? Or has our soul, has it dried up and shriveled up? Church, what are we feeding our souls on? What are we feeding our souls on? Are you abiding in the words of God? Are you holding fast to them? Are you living by them? Are they the meditation of your heart? I'm not saying it's easy. It is a battle for me personally. I'm sure it's a battle for all of us, but it is a battle we must never give up in and we must never stop trying until we see Jesus face to face and we have a new nature, a non-sinful nature where it will be natural to meditate on him, to look on him, to see him, to love him, and to make him our everything. But until then, it is a battle. But man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's stand and pray. We'll have a minute of response time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for sending us the Spirit of God, the breath of God, who lives in us now. You have filled us with him, and he is testifying to the truth in our hearts Thank you for the conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment that the Spirit brings to us and to this world. I pray that your Spirit would continue to work through us and around us and the people who don't know you yet, that they would too would be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment and would turn to you and love you. Please, Lord. And God, I pray that we would take heed your words, God. We would we'd meditate on your words. We would live by your words, the word of life. That we would crave it more than we crave our bread, our daily bread. Jesus, we need you. We need your words. Thank you for the spirit and continue to glorify yourself through us. We pray this in your name. Holy, holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.